This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. And that brings me tonight, of course, to, uh, to our speaker, Professor Christopher Wills, who'll be telling us about the evolution of complexity from the human brain to the rainforest. And as ever, it's, uh, it, I find it a, a unique pleasure to be able to introduce scientists of the caliber of Professor Wills. He, uh, like many great scientists, was born in the UK. And... Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but finding that a little too small, his, his family moved to Canada, and uh, he grew up um, there in Canada and received his first degree from the University of British Columbia, and later on received a PhD in genetics from UC Berkeley. We were very lucky to have him move to San Diego and join UCSD in 1972, initially as an associate professor, and now he is a, a very distinguished full professor in our section of ecology, behavior, and evolution in the Division of Biological Sciences. Um, so you know that you just don't have to take only my word for it. Professor Wills has received many awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, um, awards from the AAAS, uh, the Association for the Advancement of Science, for his excellence in teaching. And also he authored a book that in 1988 titled Children of Prometheus, The Accelerating um, Pace of Human Evolution, was chosen out of thousands and thousands of science books to be uh, one of the five finalists for the 2000 uh, Aventus Prize. The Aventus Prize is essentially the Booker Prize of science, and it gives you a, a taste, if you like, of the respect and high esteem in which Professor Wills is held by the scientific community. His interests in evolutionary biology are both broad and deep, and he touches on many areas in his research that... Um, help illuminate three of the key principles that Darwin spoke about in terms of thinking about evolutionary biology. And those three principles, of course, are natural selection, hereditary and the mechanisms of hereditary, and, of course, the fact that all populations need to have variation in them for evolution to be taking place. And so what Professor Wills will be taking us on a journey tonight will be talking about how diversity is important in populations, and how at many different levels, be it genome evolution that's acting in terms of how humans are evolving, or the, the content of, of diversity in an ecosystem such as a coral reef or, a, uh, or a, a rainforest, are incredibly important and part and parcel of the whole evolutionary process that results in these amazingly complex systems that we enjoy, be it the human brain or something uh, as, as beautiful as the rainforest. So without further ado, I'd like to ask Professor Wills to come up and, uh, and deliver his lecture. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steve, for that overwhelming introduction. Um, I'll do my best to try to live up to it. And I also want to thank uh, the Museum of Natural History for uh, hosting this series. It's uh, really, I think, a wonderful venue. What I'd like to talk about tonight is one of the important aspects of Darwin's theory of evolution, 
which is that all populations, all evolving populations, populations that are capable of changing over time genetically, must be filled with genetic variation on which natural selection can act. Without such variation, even if the populations are variable and they look different, uh, members look different from each other, natural selection won't work. Darwin was well aware of this and pointed out uh, in The Origin of Species that there had to be variation on which selection could act. He didn't know the nature of that variation, of course, but he did spend many years studying Organisms in great detail. One of the things perhaps people don't know very much about Darwin is that he spent 10 years of his life laboring over an enormous body of work involving barnacles. Uh, he examined barnacles from around the world, arranged them, named them, uh, rearranged them into, into uh, trees of relatedness, discovered many things about their life cycles, and also discovered, as you can see in this picture, which was commissioned by Darwin for one of his books, that this particular species of barnacle, uh, uh, of, of, of Balanus, comes in a variety of different types. It's all one species, but you wouldn't think so when you look at them. You might think these were all different species. Some of this variation is due to the fact that the barnacles are growing under different conditions, but some of the variation, has been, as has been discovered since, is in fact genetic variation. And that genetic variation, as Darwin realized, is an essential part of evolution. So what I want to talk about tonight is the genetic variation that we see in our species, variation which can be discovered now, which can be understood now in great detail, in part because of the Human Genome Project. This cover that you see here is the cover of, of uh, Nature uh, from uh, uh, February 2001, in which the first draft of the entire human genome was presented. They still haven't got a complete genome, but they're getting closer and closer to it. And this... <coughs> Excuse me, this draft essentially was something that for the first time allowed us to begin to plumb the true extent of the variation that we find within our species. And that variation essentially formed an important part of the cover of nature itself. If you zoom in on the cover, you see that in fact it consists of a whole bunch of pictures of people, all kinds of people, all cleverly put together into this mosaic. So when you back away from it, you see the double helix of DNA. When you zoom in, you essentially get some glimpse, at least, of the variation that lies within our species. So tonight I'm going to be talking about variation within our species. I'm going to be talking about variation within some plant species that we'll be talking about in a moment. And also variation in ecosystems, where the variation is not necessarily at the genetic level, maybe at the level of the species, We'll be talking about rainforest ecosystems, but it turns out that the processes that maintain the variation in the rainforest have a surprising amount to do with the processes that maintain variation within our own species. Just to give you a glimpse, to remind you of just how variable our species is, I've been doing a lot of traveling in connection with this research. Take a camera with me, I've taken pictures of all sorts of interesting people, and you get some glimpse at least. Here are some very determined people uh, who live under the grimmest conditions in the, in the central plateau of Madagascar. Um, many other people in Madagascar. Uh, a Pantanero from southern Brazil. Um, and this young lady is a good representative of the enormous mixture of people that one finds in, in that vibrant country. 
Um, the Solomon Islands uh, is a crossroads of the Pacific with many different groups of people who've come together and mixed in the islands. In Southeast Asia, a wide variety of different Aboriginal peoples, a surprising number of them, some of whom have peopled the entire Pacific, uh, are spread over a wide range of, uh, of the planet. And the uh, variety that one sees in this part of the world in terms of behaviors, in terms of cultures, in terms of people and languages is really quite overwhelming. In India, well, everyone knows that India is a, an incredible repository of astounding variation. I mean, uh, it, it just it blows you away, quite literally. And uh, one finds in Rajasthan, in other parts of India, a huge variety of different peoples because India, once again, has been a crossroads for many years of migration of different peoples from Asia, from, uh, from the Middle East, and, uh, and Aboriginal peoples who came to India a much longer ago than that. So, by glimpsing this, the glimpse, for example, of people in, uh, in Australia, the Aboriginals of, Australia, of Northern Australia, who've lived in this part of the world for at least 40,000 years and who have had, essentially, a continuity of culture during all that time. And the Tiwi Islanders to the north, who, once again, are a mix of peoples from, the, uh, from Australia and also some intermixture from the north. The peoples of New Guinea, well... There's a diversity for you. Huge numbers of people living in different tribal groups, more than 800 different languages spoken on the island of New Guinea, and the variety of different peoples and of different cultures is literally quite overwhelming. This child is one who will be growing up in a world that's going to become even more diverse because now for the first time people in different parts of the world are beginning to meet each other in substantial numbers and we're beginning to see here in America the effects of this with uh, uh, people uh, uh, like Tiger Woods and of course Barack Obama who are wonderful examples of people who are resulting from this mixture of gene pools that had never happened uh, up to, or almost never happened up until very recently. Well, we can ask a number of questions about our evolution as a species. First of all, how do we differ genetically from our closest relatives? And those close relatives include the chimpanzees, who are our closest living relatives, and the Neanderthals, who uh, are some of our closest relatives from, uh, uh, from uh, many years ago. The Neanderthals disappeared from Western Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, and, uh, and, and, uh, and the Middle East. Uh, uh, approximately 20,000 years ago and it's quite possible that modern people moving into this area wipe them out, we don't know. Still, we're beginning now to glimpse some of the genetic differences between us, ourselves, the chimpanzees and the Neanderthals. Second question I'd like to look at briefly. What kinds of genetic variation can be found in our gene pool? We've talked about huge amounts of of, of uh, variation at the visible level. Not all this variation, of course, is due to, uh, to the action of genes. A good deal of it is the result of different cultures, uh, different environments, but there is some genetic component to very many of the differences that I, I gave you a glimpse of in the last few lectures. What is the genetic variation? How can we characterize that variation? And third, and most importantly from the standpoint of this talk, what selective pressures have driven our evolution 
And how is the genetic diversity in the human population maintained? This is a point that I'll keep circling back to as we look at some things that may not at first appear to make a great deal of sense or fit into this pattern, but it will, I think, all come together as the talk proceeds. Well, first of all, we can ask how do we indeed differ genetically from uh, the chimpanzees and, uh, and uh, from uh, the Neanderthals? Well, we now have at least a draft uh, summary of the genome of the chimpanzee. We can begin to compare gene by gene the differences between humans and chimpanzees. We find that we are about 98% identical in terms of our DNA sequences, but in terms of the genes that we have, the 20-odd thousand genes that we possess and that Neanderthals, uh, sorry, that uh, chimpanzees possess, those genes are almost all held in common. You can find a corresponding gene in the Neanderthal genome to pretty much every gene that's found in the human genome, with a very few exceptions. So the resemblance thing between ourselves and our closest living relatives is dramatic. Even more dramatic is the resemblance between ourselves and the Neanderthals. These people who lived in Western Europe until very recently and also in other parts of uh, Europe, um, a fair amount of DNA, much more than a million bases now, has been sequenced from Neanderthal bones. You can extract DNA from, from bones that have not become fully fossilized and it's possible to extract this, as Svante Pabo and his colleagues have, have brilliantly done, and look at their sequence. This is early days yet. Pabo expects to have an actual draft of the Neanderthal genome in a year or two, and it'll be very interesting to see how that compares with us. It's clear that Neanderthals were much closer relatives to us than the chimpanzees. And the last common ancestor lived at least half a million years ago. So, very close compared with our last common ancestor with chimpanzees roughly six million years ago. So we're much closer relatives to the Neanderthals. Well, we've had a bit of a love-hate relationship with the Neanderthals over the years. Uh, sometimes we've looked upon them as brutish creatures. This picture from about 100 years ago in a book by Marcel Ambeau um, is essentially some notion of how, how some of the earliest discoverers of Neanderthal skeletons viewed these people. Brutish, hairy, uh, carrying all sorts of nasty implements and things like that. This has lasted down to quite a while. I found this amusing little thing on the internet here. Here is a movie poster from the 1950s, The Neanderthal Man. Uh, what primitive passions, what mad desires drove him on. The guy here is, is really rather primitive, to say the least, and these young ladies are all running around and screaming. It is a movie. Maybe you can get it on Netflix. I don't know. <laughs> but in any case... What we have discovered more recently, of course, is that Neanderthals were much closer to us in behavior and probably, as it turns out, in appearance. We now know that Neanderthals were able to... Uh, uh, they had quite elaborate culture. Their tool-using capabilities, their tool-making capabilities were, were remarkable. They made decorative objects. One thing they didn't seem to have done was draw pictures on the walls of caves, but that could simply be because nobody had suggested it to them. So... We find that at least some Neanderthals, like many modern Europeans, carry a mutation in a gene, uh, a melanocortin receptor gene. I won't go into the details of this gene, but it is a gene that influences the kind of melanin that is deposited in the skin and deposited in the hair. It seems likely that at least some Neanderthals had reddish hair and rather pale skin, rather like a good many Western Europeans of the present time. 
but the mutation in the, in the Neanderthal melanocortin gene was different from the mutation found in modern humans. The results are the same. The origin resulted from different mutations. So the Neanderthals looked very much like us, but for a slightly different reason, and yet the same gene was involved. Very, very close. Uh, the, 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 the parallels between ourselves and the Neanderthals become more and more apparent the more we learn about these people. So, what is the variation that has contributed to this evolution that has separated us from the Neanderthals and that ultimately separated us from the chimpanzees? If we look among different human individuals, we find many, many millions of genetic differences, about 80% of which are single base differences between the individuals. That is to say, if you run your eye down through a, a sequence of bases along a DNA molecule, every once in a while, when you compare two molecules from the modern human population, you'll find, uh, about one in every thousand bases, that, that there are differences between them. A single base change here that essentially is one small genetic difference. These changes, for the most part, have no particular effect, but some of them can have quite substantial effects. They can cause diseases, they can cause uh, big differences in how people uh, uh, appear, and in a few cases we know about even in how they behave. So this accounts then for 80% of the variation we see. The other 20% is a huge and heterogeneous collection of other stuff. Uh, mostly insertions and deletions, pieces of DNA that have been removed or that have been inserted into uh, different chromosomes from the human population. So we can see many, many such differences. Our laboratories examine quite a few of these differences. Oh, I should say, by the way, that this is just a map of, of a region of one of our chromosomes showing in a, in a graphical form all the differences between many different chromosomes that have been examined in a project called the HapMap project, and we'll come back to this project a little later on. What it is is a survey of the single base differences in the entire human species. And the HapMap project has now tracked down about four million of these differences and uh, is an astounding and extremely valuable tool for us to understand the nature of the variation in our species. We've been working for quite a few years on little repeated regions of DNA, so-called microsatellite regions, which can grow or shrink depending on uh, mutational changes that can happen in the population. Microsatellites often fine-tune the way in which genes are expressed. And the interesting thing about microsatellite mutations is that they can happen and then they can unhappen again. It's possible for a mutation to reverse itself much more readily than a single base change mutation can. So microsatellites are just one of this other heterogeneous collection of, of kinds of changes that you find in the human gene pool. What selective pressures have driven our evolution? This is the third question I'd like to uh, investigate. Directional selection is the kind of natural selection that we normally think of. Uh, selective pressure that essentially has the effect of replacing one form of a gene with another form. One form of a gene is removed from the population by selection against the individuals carrying that gene, and another form of the gene essentially moves in to take its place, maybe selected for. There's another, and this is what everyone thinks about when they think about natural selection. You're essentially replacing one gene with another. 
This causes a problem because people who don't have this new gene, this new advantageous gene, are at a disadvantage. They may be ill, they may, may be unable to have as many children as people who have the new gene. There are all sorts of reasons why there's going to be a cost to this kind of, of selection. As you substitute one gene for another, somebody has got to die. And this process of natural selection is one that is going on all the time. And as we'll see in the human population, it's going on at quite a dramatic rate. There's another kind of selection that people don't think of as much, and this is balancing selection. Here, new forms of a gene may enter the population and then move to some what's called an internal equilibrium in the trade, some, some frequency or proportion in the population where they move up to that frequency and then they stop. And once they're in the population, they don't replace the old gene. They move in, remove some, uh, some of the old genes are removed, and eventually you have the two forms of the gene coexisting. And you may have quite a lot of different forms of the gene coexisting in a population simultaneously. Balancing selection also has a cost, but there's a very interesting aspect to this cost. The cost is not as severe sometimes as the directional selection cost. And we'll come back to that very interesting point a little later on. What balancing selection does is pour variation into a population. The more balancing selection is going on, the more variation is being held in the population by natural selection. And that's another interesting aspect of how evolution works. I'd like to spend a good deal of time in this talk talking about a particular type of balancing selection called frequency-dependent selection. Frequency-dependent selection is selection in which a gene may be at, a uh, sorry, at an advantage when it's rare, but as it increases in frequency, it loses that advantage and may even become disadvantageous. Let me give you a, a rather vivid example of this. Uh, actually, this is um, work which uh, Josh Cohn in our group is, uh, is carrying out, uh, along with uh, other investigators who are looking at a phenomenon called pollen incompatibility. Now you remember from uh, what you know about plants that, uh, that uh, the fertilization process in flowering plants involves the transfer of pollen from the anther to the stigma of the female part of another flower and then of course this, uh, well, we, we'll, we'll, we're, this is all X-rated from now on so we won't go into the details here. But anyway, this process then is one that plants, of course, carry out all the time. And the transfer, of course, can be by wind, it can be by insects, it can be birds, bats, all kinds of things can transfer pollen from one flower to another. In plants of the, uh, flower, flowering plants of the cabbage family and some other groups of plants, there's a very interesting process here which ensures that these plants are genetically different from these. The male plant must be genetically different from the female plant in order for the fertilization process to take place. So suppose you've got a locus, which in this case is the S locus in the, in the cabbage family, and suppose there are three forms of alleles at this locus. We'll call them A1, A2, and A3. Now, you've got these three alleles here. The rules are like Sudoku in a way. This is a kind of genetic Sudoku. So you'll get your Sudoku brains going here and you can begin to see what's happening. The rules are simple. This has to be completely different from this. So A1, A1 flower can mate with an A2, A2 flower. But an A1, A1 flower can't mate with an A1, A1 flower. 
So if you have three alleles, these matings are all possible, but these matings are not. So most of the matings here are not going to work. So this population is going to suffer substantially if there aren't enough alleles at this locus. Now I think you can see intuitively that if we introduce another allele at this locus, this changes this whole dynamic because the first plant to have this new allele, we'll call it A4, the first plant to have this new allele is going to be at a great advantage. It's much more likely to be genetically different from the other plant and therefore mate with it successfully than plants that still have those same old three original alleles. To make things fairly vivid here, I've set up a little computer simulation to show you how it works. Start with a population that has three alleles. This axis shows all the alleles in the population. A third of the alleles are red alleles, a third are green, a third are blue. And if you have a population where uh, the Sudoku that I just showed on the previous slide is going on, then generation after generation, all three of these alleles are maintained. So I let it run for a thousand generations or so, and then I began to introduce new alleles. And here's a new allele that's popping in here. This new allele, when it's rare, has an advantage. It rushes up in frequency until it overshoots a bit and then uh, actually uh, begins to go down here. But it rushes up in frequency. Now you've got four alleles at uh, at, at this particular uh, piece of the chromosome. And now another gene appears, another one pops in, and now it also, when it's rare, has a big advantage, increases in frequency, and eventually stabilizes. And you can add more and more alleles to this system. So, whoops, wait a minute, let's, uh, let's go back. Let's try it again here. There we go. Now, I'm running the simulation here, generation after generation, we're adding more and more alleles. You can see that each time a new allele appears, it increases in frequency and then stabilizes. We're packing the population with more and more variation. This is exactly what you see when you look at wild populations in the cabbage family. The flowers are, the populations are filled with these alleles and they're held there by this frequency-dependent process. The alleles are at an advantage when they're rare because they give the, the uh, plant a chance to mate with other plants. But when they start to increase in frequency, they lose that advantage. And eventually you get to the point, as I say, it's quite dizzying, uh, where you get as many as 50 alleles in this population of 5,000 plants. That's a lot of variation that's being held in the population by this frequency-dependent process that I talked about. Now, the fascinating thing about this, and I'll come back to this at the end here, I hope everyone's still with me on this, because it's, uh, you're packing the population full of genetic variation, and the cost of doing so diminishes with time. To begin with, there's a huge cost. Many of the matings, when there are very few alleles in the population, many of the matings don't work. But as you add more and more alleles, more and more of the matings work. That makes sense, because the more alleles you have, the more likely it is that you'll be genetically different from the plant that you want to mate with. So the result is going to be that as time goes on, the cost of having all this variation in the population actually drops. So the burden of the population then can diminish quite dramatically, and indeed this uh, loss of, of uh, this, this gain of, of the population, that the population is now a healthier population because it is packed 
with this kind of genetic variation. Now, this is an important point. If, in fact, this kind of selection is happening in the human population, this may help to explain why our population is packed with genetic variation. It's not the only explanation, but it is a very interesting one. Now, frequency dependence is found in all sorts of other places, and we got involved in this because uh, my colleagues and I have been working for some years now on, on uh, very, very complex ecosystems like the rainforest. Rainforests are, as you know, a bewilderingly complex collections of animals and plants that for the most part are found in the tropics. There are some temperate rainforests, but for the most part are tropical. They're just packed with variation at the species level. If you go through a rainforest, almost every tree seems to be a different species. That's not quite true, but still, you may find in a given piece of rainforest literally thousands of spe different species of tree. The diversity is overwhelming. Why so much diversity? What is going on? Well, it turns out that uh, the data needed to answer this question began to be collected a few decades ago by some far-sighted ecologists, most notably Steve Hubble and Robin Foster, who, with the assistance of the Smithsonian Institution, began to look at um, pieces of rainforest which they established, rainforest plots that they established in various parts of the tropics. Here's the Smithsonian. We're now going to hop away from the Smithsonian, dizzyingly zooming across the planet. I borrowed this idea from Steve Kay. Uh, dizzyingly zooming across the planet until we arrive at the first forest that was established some decades ago on Barra Colorado Island uh, in Panama. Barra Colorado Island is um, an island in the middle of a large lake that makes up a good deal of the Panama Canal. It's easier to form a lake by damming something than it is to dig a big ditch. And that essentially explains why uh, you have this big lake. Barra Colorado Island is, used to be part of a continuous rainforest, but now it's been fragmented because of the lake. This plot is the plot that Steve and his colleagues established back in the 70s. It's a plot that consists of a half square kilometre of pretty much untouched forest, consisting of a quarter of a million trees, made up of over 300 different species. We now know the names of all these species, each individual tree, and this has now been followed through five, going on six different five-year censuses. We can follow over time the dynamics of what has happened in this forest. So we're able to look at slices in time and follow the dynamics of this forest just as we were able to look in that simulation I showed you of what happens to a, a cabbage population as it begins to fill up with genetic variability. What's going on in the forest? Well, it turns out that if you look at different parts of the forest, you see the results of frequency-dependent selection. Except this is now not at the level of genes, but at the level of different species. If you look in this part of the forest and you find that a species that we'll call the red species, it's some, one, of the, one of the 300 species of tree, in this part of the forest this species is quite common. The darker red dots here show trees that have been recruited during the census period. So these trees now have, have now appeared in this part of the forest you find that if there are lots of this red species in this part of the forest, you get relatively few recruits. If there are a few of the red species in other parts of the forest, you get proportionately more recruits. 
So when the red species is common, there are fewer than the expected number of recruits. When the red species is rare, 